Be what the culture needs. Don't reflect what the culture is. Don't get pulled in their carnal conversations. Don't get pulled in their, their, their bitter spirits. I don't see things necessarily in the culture getting any better, but my hope is that I see changes in the church, and we need to keep pressing into this. Welcome to Living a Legacy, featuring the Bible teaching ministry of Crawford Lawrence. Do you feel yourself reacting angrily to the cultural changes around you? What does the Bible say about our role toward those who oppose the principles and commands of Scripture? Well, join us as we continue in Crawford's series, Navigating Life's Challenges, a study in 1 Peter. Today we'll present the second part of last week's message, How to Thrive in the Mess. Crawford is carefully and honestly teaching what the Bible says about practicing servanthood among those who don't like us. If you're new to our broadcast, Crawford has served in Christian ministry for over 50 years. He recently retired from Fellowship Bible Church of Roswell, Georgia, after pastoring there for over 15 years. The messages we feature here on Living a Legacy come from his time at Fellowship Bible Church. Crawford now heads a leadership mentoring program called Beyond Our Generation. Well, if you've not been able to join us for this series, the previous messages are all available to stream on our website, and I'll have more information about that at the end of our time today. In this lesson, Crawford is asking crucial questions about how we will respond to those who angrily and sometimes viciously oppose us. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's Crawford Loretz on Living a Legacy. And what Peter is saying is, look, 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 look. Your, your, your circumstances doesn't define who you are. Where you live doesn't determine the nature of your Christianity. The oppressive regimes that you're in and this kind of thing, it can't rob you of your joy. You're free. Yet I think he's saying something more here. Bear with me. He's also saying uh, we submit as those who are free in Christ. Now hear me. Not as those who have a subservient spirit. We're not subservient. We're submissive. We're not subservient. In other words, I said this last week, how they treat you should not determine your dignity. Yeah, you're in this oppressive regime. You're under this set of circumstances, and I want you in order to survive and and for the testimony of the gospel, yes, submit to this. But what they say about you and how they treat you is not who you really are. We serve authority, we're not owned by authority. That's what he's saying. We're free. Remember, that's what he said. Again, connect this with context. Connect it with the context. That's the reason why Peter goes through this litany, these five portraits of who they are, because he wants to affirm in their hearts their strength and their dignity. He says, you're a hungry infant feeding on the word of God. You are a living foundation. You have stability because of the blood of the Lord Jesus. You are royalty because you're owned by him. And you are a sojourner. That's who you are. You can submit to man's authority because they can't change that. They can't change that. So you're free. And he says, fourthly, now what I want you to do again I want you to respect and honor authority. That's what verse 17 is all about. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. I want you to notice 
that honor is a command. He is, he says, no, don't respect and honor them because they deserve your respect and honor. We got some little crazy thinking here in the West. Now, I won't respect you. You earn my respect. Now, on a personal level, we ought to, we ought to live in such a way in which, you know, we do earn the respect of others. But honor and respect are givens as a believer. No matter how vile and messed up the system might be, no matter how much you may disagree with who's ever in office or whoever is the leader may be, don't let it be said of you that you are dishonoring. It's high standard. And notice there are no qualifiers around this. He says, you honor and respect the office. Secondly, he says, you know, you, you need to love fellow Christians. I think what's behind us, he says, look, 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 don't turn on one another. You all need to survive. You need community to survive. You need to love each other. Don't, don't fight with one another. And again, I'm not, I'm not walking outside the text. He was saying, don't let issues divide you. Don't let this stuff cause you to have camps with one another. Now, it's a clear violation of Scripture. That's another thing. But ultimately, he said, your love and your unity is casting integrity in presenting a message of wholeness concerning the gospel. By this should all men know you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, don't be fighting with each other. Fear God. And he says, finally, honor civil authorities, but this whole idea, he says, Honor the emperor. Now, I started not to interject this, but I think I need to interject this here to help us understand. Peter wasn't just talking about nirvana and sugar talk here. Do you know who the emperor was? The emperor was Nero. You know anything about Nero? Nero was not a nice guy. To say that Nero was the base is probably not strong enough. I won't say all about Nero's morality because we've got some young people in here. But let me just put it this way. Nero was hellaciously, nauseatingly, disgustingly perverse. The worst form of perversion that you can imagine, historically documented. Nero, Nero, also, Nero also burned Rome and blamed it on the Christians. He also had this delightful habit of rounding up Christians. He would, he would have animals, wild animals killed. And then he would take Christians and sew them inside the skins of these animals and then drop them in the midst of wild dogs. Then he also would grab Christians. This is historically documented. He would grab Christians and he, he had this thing of these long shirts that he would re, have repeatedly dipped in wax. Put them on these Christians and then tie them to posts in his garden and light them up. This dude was a bad actor. He killed his own mother. Finally, his demented immorality and all of this stuff caught up with him, and he committed suicide. And yet Peter says, there I utter the words, honor the emperor. He's not saying endorse him. Not saying endorse his immorality, honor. Now, the very first thing, we're to be model citizens, wherever we are. 
Secondly, uh, Peter says we're called to be. It's hard to I get cotton mouth with this one. Uh, we're called to be submissive servants. And again, you have to understand that Peter is not endorsing slavery or injustice. You've got to read it in its broader context. He is not endorsing slavery or injustice. None whatsoever. What makes it difficult for me to preach on this passage, and a number of African Americans, because of our background, I've said this before, and I just want to be vulnerable and open with you, is because of the pain of slavery. You read that word in the text, and you talk about, and you, you understand the lynchings, and you understand all the things that's taken place in our history and our past, and you say, well, how can I stomach this nonsense? But you have to understand that he's not talking about endorsing it. He's talking about how to get along, how to thrive and survive in the midst of, of, of a system that you have no control over. And by the way, I have to say here, slavery in the Roman Empire was different, far different, far different from slavery here in the West. Far different. Um, slavery in the Roman Empire was not race-based. It was more indentured servitude. Originally, slavery here in the West was even indentured servitude back in the 1700s, and then it changed. You know, Indians can run away and assimilate. Whites could run away and assimilate. Hey, the brothers couldn't assimilate. And uh, uh, these were people, by the way, who, who were primarily taken from uh, conquered lands and brought back to Rome. Uh, some say that as many as 25 to 30 percent of the entire Roman population were slaves. And again, this was not even particularly lower economically based. I mean, these, many of these slaves, many of them, many of them were professionals. And also they had, if you can call it that, they had somewhat of a decent way of getting out of it. You, you, could, you, you could buy your way to freedom. And many did that. So the slavery in Rome was different than the slavery here in the United States. Now, having said all of that, uh, I need to tell you here that the word slave that he uses here is not the common word for slave. The common word for slave in the Greek text is uh, doulos or douloi, uh, meaning servant or slave. But he uses a very specific term for slave here because he's talking to those who were most harshly treated. He uses the word oikotai here comes from the Greek word oikos, which means house. He's really referring to household or domestic slaves. Now, this is just the opposite here. If you know anything about slave system in the United States, that the, the slaves who were the most harshly treated under our system were the field slaves. And relatively speaking, I'll put quotes around it, the, the, the slaves who were treated most humanely, I'll keep it sanitized here, were called the house Negroes, uh, because they did, were domestic. It's flipped. It was flipped in the Roman Empire. The ones who were treated most harshly were the oikotai, the domestic slaves. And so Peter is writing to these people, and some of them are oikotai. Some of them are domestic slaves, servants. And what does he say to them? Verse 18, he says this very same thing as he says about government. He says in verse 18, same word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And again, I think what Peter is saying, look, I, I don't want you to be abused. I don't want you to be beaten. 
If at all possible, man, just, just do what they say. I mean, don't compromise the Bible. But don't, I don't want, you know, just, just live the life before them and do what they say. Just tell them how to make it, how to survive. But he also says, suffer with anticipation. That's what verses 19 and 20 are about. Look closely at them. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, circle that, one who endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you, su- you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What, what he's saying here is that, look, keep your eyes on the Lord. That God's with you in this awful set of circumstances. You, you got to believe this. This is the motivation for bearing up under suffering and oppression. The conscious awareness of God's presence. It's almost as if I know, I know you can't see him. And I know that you don't always feel him, but he is there. Some time ago, I was in Colorado Springs, and, and if you know anything about Colorado Springs, it's just a gorgeous city. It sits down a little bit, and there are mountains all around it. It is spectacular. But that day that we drove in, the clouds had settled over the city. And although the mountains are just, they're very close, they're just a few miles away, you literally could not see the mountains. It was the most bizarre thing. I had never been there, you know, on days like that. And I, where are the mountains? They've gone someplace. And I woke up the next morning and it cleared out and there are those beautiful mountains. What Peter is saying is, look, look, look. Yeah, the clouds have rolled in. And I know you can't sense them and feel them all the time. No, what changes is the weather, but the mountains are still there. God is still there. Be mindful of him and his grace in your heart and in your life. Be conscious of him. Be conscious of his presence. Now, I need to roll back a little bit here because there's a tension historically. You look at passages like this and you say to yourself, okay, okay, okay. Um, we got to submit to the laws of the land. Well, what about the civil rights movement? What about dissent in our country? What about protests? Are Christians who are involved in protests, are they violating the scriptures? Many believe that. See, I came of age during the civil rights movement. I was 18 in 1968. I had a front row seat to all this stuff, and some of you who are kind of like in my genre were there too. And I went to a Christian college. And I'm almost ashamed to say this, but many of my professors in that Christian college said that to protest at all was a violation of Romans 13. It was a violation of the scriptures. And I was conflicted about that. I never felt that way. But then through the years, as I began studying a little bit more about our framework, um, they were absolutely categorically wrong. See, here's the point. 
Um, Peter's writing to these folks who are not a part of a democratic republic. And here's where we need to bless the Lord for the United States of America. God has blessed this country, I mean, in ways that you don't, we, we're not even conscious of. We're, we don't even appreciate even the writers of our Constitution, the signers of the Declaration of Our Independence, were not consciously aware of how God was using them, ironically, to dismantle what they endorsed. Most of them owned slaves. George Washington did own slaves. Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. Most of the framers did it. And being equal opportunity, going in the evangelical camp, we, we talk about Jonathan Edwards, who's the father of modern evangelicalism. He owned slaves too. So they didn't write that intending to dismantle the slave system, but guess what? God's hand was on them. In this democratic republic, the supreme law of the land is the Constitution. It's the Constitution, which guarantees us the right to, uh, for free speech and the right of lawful, peaceful dissent and protest. And so I argue quite clearly, this is not a stretch, that when Rosa Parks back in the 50s in Montgomery, Alabama, when she sat in the front of the bus, it was against the laws of Alabama. But she was abiding by the laws of the Constitution. Young people who sat in lunch counters here in Georgia, who are black, they violated the laws of Georgia. But they were abiding by the laws of the Constitution. And it was that very Constitution that endorsed peaceful dissent. So we have the right to protest. It's like the other day, I'm riding through the square in downtown Marietta, of all places, and there are these white supremacists doing their little thing. And I thought, well, God bless you. This is the United States of America. So when you read these words here, understand the context here. That we're not violating this in our own context if there's lawful, peaceful dissent. Abortion is murder, and we speak up for the rights of the, of, of the unborn, and you ought to do that. It's a justice issue, and we're allowed and commissioned to do that in our culture and in this country. Suffer with anticipation, and then finally draw your strength from Christ's example. For the sake of time, I won't read this, but the last paragraph there, verses 21 through 25 Peter makes these, I think, three assertions as he holds up Jesus as the ultimate illustration. As the ultimate illustration, he says, number one, Jesus was innocent. So make sure that your heart is clean and pure. You keep a pure heart as you face your suffering and the oppression there. Secondly, he says that Jesus drew strength from God. Press into him just as Jesus did. By the way, Jesus did not give up power when he was crucified. Wrong teaching about the atonement, wrong teaching about his death on the cross, wrong teaching about that. Jesus said himself in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. He maintained power. And so to suffer justly does not mean that, that you're a doormat. It means that you're trusting God. By the way, he also said when they kind of like said, well, we're going to take your life from me. He said, no, nah, no, nah, you, you do need to understand something. I could call down 10,000 angels and stop this mess right now. And then thirdly, 
Jesus fulfilled his assignment. That's what verses 24 and 25 is all about. Peter's saying suffering is redemptive, and so is ours. Well, let me make these five observations or suggestions, and, and, and I'll be done. So what do we, how do we wrap our hearts and minds around model citizens, submissive servants? We need to pray for our leaders. Even if you disagree with them, pray. We're instructed to pray for our leaders. Secondly, we need to be civil in our disagreements. We need to do that. We need to spend, thirdly, more time doing good and less time complaining. I wonder if we spent more time serving than we do sharing our opinions if we wouldn't have a greater impact. Fourthly, I would encourage us to pour ourselves into sharing the gospel and discipling others. If we talk more about Jesus than we did about the latest, you know, thing that we disagree with with this administration or with what's happening in our world or this kind of thing, we need to speak much of Jesus. And the last one is this. We need to speak up. This sounds like it's not connected, but it is. We need to speak up for those who don't have a voice. I think the greatest privilege that we have as Americans in this culture, in this country, is not taking our freedoms to do as we please, but taking our freedoms to help other people to be what God called them to be. Don't give that up. Don't give that. Be what the culture needs. Don't reflect what the culture is. Don't get pulled into their nonsense. Don't get pulled into their carnal conversations. Don't get pulled into their messes. Don't get pulled into their, their, their bitter spirits. I don't see things necessarily in the culture getting any better, but my hope is that I see changes in the church, and we need to keep pressing into this so that we model to the world what they need to be about. This is the hope, and that's what Peter was saying. Look, 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 don't trade that in. You have opportunity. How to Thrive in the Mess, the title of today's message by Dr. Crawford Loretz. Crawford is leading us through a series called Navigating Life's Challenges, based on the book of 1 Peter. If you're finding this series helpful, please let us know. Your interaction is vital as it helps assure us that this program is being used by God to communicate His Word. Randy from Nebraska recently wrote to us. He says the recent messages focusing on holiness have been very rewarding. As sinners, we cannot be truly holy as God is, but with Christ in us, we can be transformed to a greater degree of holiness than we could ever achieve through our own works. Crawford's encouraging teaching on this subject has been wonderful to hear. Blessings to the Legacy team. Well, thanks so much, Randy. That's very helpful. Well, how about you? Email us at legacy at moody.edu, legacy at moody.edu. Take note of it right now before you forget, legacy at moody.edu. If you missed out on any of the messages in this series, get caught up on our website. Look for the past programs link, and you can download the entire series for free. Click on the MP3 link on the website. Here's that address, livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. Well, thanks for being part of our study today. For Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis. Living a Legacy is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.